Hey, this is Rochelle, community producer here at Self-Evident. Before you listen to today's episode, I want to ask for your help. Please pause and head over to selfevidentshow.com slash participate, where you can take our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes, it's anonymous, and knowing more about you will really help us as we do everything we can to keep this all going. Every voice counts. So I hope you can pitch in today by going to selfevidentshow.com slash participate. Enjoy the show. For the last 20 years, Cecilia Kim has been operating OEG Fruit and Vegetable, a produce and flower market in Flappish, Brooklyn. It's the kind of place with bins of fruit stacked along the sidewalk, with discounts for the ones that are slightly overripe. Cherry, and the plum, peach. Very summery things. Mm, yeah. Summer thing there, yeah. Mm-hmm. The winter time is different. Winter time, orange and clementine, tangerine. The community here is largely Caribbean American, although gentrification has set in. Her shop is sandwiched between a Trinidadian roti shop, an Israeli restaurant, a Chinese takeout place, and a bodega. Come, Mama, come. Behind the register, nestled between international phone cards, is an autographed photo of Cecilia smiling next to the comedian Tracy Morgan from when he was filming a movie on the block a few years ago. I remember that week. I've been a neighbor and customer of Cecilia's for the last 10 years. People around here call her Cece. Thank you, Mama. Thank you. Cece is one of many Korean Americans who opened produce markets in New York City after they immigrated to the States. I asked her how she and her husband got into the business. No choice. <laughs> no choice. Why is it no choice, though? Me, immigration people. Me, 105. Mm-hmm. Generation. Hey, I'm, me, me no school over here. Okay. Well, keep us on. All right. Oh. Sure. And one, only high school for the Korea. And me, first job is a fruit vegetable store. A small market for fresh produce has much lower overhead costs compared to a supermarket. And there are many corners of New York City that have neither. So, whenever a small produce market opened in a neighborhood that had very little access to fresh food, it became a hub for the community. At CeCe's shop, that means there's ingredients like yams and cassava root, squashes, chocho, plantains, scotch bonnet peppers, salt fish. Pig hair, mm-hmm. a pig nose, mm-hmm. ear, and everything. This yeah. Uh, red kidney bean together make a soup. Yeah. Mm. West Indian soup. Mm-hmm. Huh. How, do you make it here? Me, me, I don't know. No, you don't make it. <laughs> me, I don't know. The customer make it for food, uh-huh. give it me. I see. So a little bit try. Mm-hmm. That's good. And lots and lots of fresh fruit, which is always so much cheaper than at supermarkets. My husband going to market every day, see, fresh one, he buy. Very fresh one, fresh one. You know, customer coming back, coming back. Keep coming here, keep coming. Same like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same like you. Yeah, it's true. I like it. This is Self-Evident. I'm your host, Kathy Arway. And today, I'm exploring how Asian Americans across the country relate to fruit. 
Thanks to Cecilia's shop, I have an amazing selection of fruit practically spilling onto the sidewalk at my feet. And growing up, I felt like fruit was always part of my daily rituals, too. My mom hails from Taiwan, a place bursting with juicy, sun-ripened tropical fruit on every city block. And she always packed fruit in me and my brother's lunch bags. At the local supermarkets in the suburban New Jersey town that I was raised in, we'd get Macintosh apples, Bartlett pears, bananas, and nectarines. But then, if we drove out to the Asian supermarket, there would be dragon fruit and guavas and lychees and mangoes and starfruit, which was the coolest food ever when I was a kid, even more so than Pocky, because it made star-shaped segments in the most succulent, juicy crunch. But whether it was a bunch of grapes or something more exciting, there was always just fruit around. Even our Christmas stockings were always half-filled with clementines or something. And my mom had a thing for peeling apples and pears, like carving them up just so into juicy, uniformly textured cubes. Not all the time, but maybe as a special treat. A couple of years ago, an article by Yijin Lo and Taste caught my eye. It was titled, A Bowl of Cut Fruit is How Asian Moms Say I Love You. That story really resonated. Then, a story called How the Simple Art of Cutting Fruit Can Be an Act of Love by Danielle Galarza came out in the Washington Post, soon followed by If I'm Cutting Fresh Fruit for Dessert, I Probably Love You by Priya Krishna in Bon Appetit. Eater dubbed this phenomenon Cut Fruit Summer. And a lot of people got on Twitter to say that this was something shared amongst children of immigrants. It got me thinking about the importance of fruit in the lives of immigrants and Asian Americans. Was there something drastically different about fruit appreciation for us? With most of my friends growing up, I think if I did see them eating fruit, it was seen as a chore. Fruit was something of a punishment before they could eat the real dessert afterwards. Fruit was weaponized nutrition. And I always kind of got the impression that fruit was associated with temptation and sin and lust or something like that in Western folklore. Like that fateful apple that Eve eats. You know, stuff that was forbidden. And weren't apples also a poisonous temptation in Snow White? Okay. Okay, all right. So maybe that's a very small sampling of literature. But as far as I could tell, in Chinese culture, fruits were everything that was good and chaste and healthful in the world. Or the afterlife. You gave it to dead ancestors. Peaches especially symbolized good fortune and immortality. So I asked a bunch of friends and listeners whether fruit had any sort of significance to them. And almost every call had a lot to do with family. Here's Jen de la Vega, a chef and recipe developer who grew up in a big Filipino-American family in California. My grandmother planted trees for every grandchild in our family. And since I'm the first, my tree is the biggest 
and the oldest tree, it's, uh, you know, 37 years old. Um, <laughs> it was a big green apple tree on the far south side of her yard in El Sobrante, California. My tree was very abundant with green apples, but they were very small and sour, which sort of uh, aligned with how I was as a kid. <laughs> Jen, I can't see you as someone who was sour as a kid. <laughs> I, I was a pouty child. I was a very okay. picky, picky eater. But as I got older, I started to get jealous of the other cousins who had apricot trees or peach trees or persimmons that were more palatable or what I thought at the time usable. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really learn until later from my both of my grandparents uh, that you could enjoy these really sour things in different ways. Like grandma would just sprinkle salt on the very, very sour apple and it would taste great. Or we would use bagoong alamang, which is a fermented shrimp paste mm. on it. And so um, I thought, oh, well, mine is augmented by many things and uh, it's not so simple to enjoy. And I'm like, oh, kind of like me. Yeah, you're kind <laughs> of complex. Yeah. For sophisticated tastes. My Aunt Ellen is <laughs> mailing me boxes of calamansi from her backyard. No and way. I've been using every little bit of it, not just the juice, but saving the skins to make in an achar pickle, saving mm. the seeds so that I may potentially have a tree of my own one day. And I don't have a green thumb. Oh, man, <laughs> my grandma would be so disappointed in me. But I did give the seeds to a friend, my friend Phoebe, mm-hmm. who was able to sprout like one out of the seven that I gave her. And she she handed it to me at the farmer's market in this tiny plastic planter. And I was like, oh, my child, you know, <laughs> it's like, a, you know, baby Yoda, like, oh, the child. Because there was, a, there was kind of this joke on Filipino Twitter that, you know, one day you will own your calamansi tree and not have to go to someone else's house and, and steal all of theirs. <laughs> and I, I was, I was, spraying it every day. I was sitting with it outside while reading a book like, okay, you know, get your nutrients. And I left it outside overnight one night and a squirrel oh. ate not not just the plant, it ate the bottom half of the plastic that it was in. What? I know, these New York squirrels are no joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I was shaking my fist and like on my knees like, my legacy! <laughs> Oh, no. My mother, you know, who's Korean-American, my father, who is African-American, both from rural kind of agrarian traditions, have been growing food since I was in my mother's womb. That's Dorothy Pirtle, who gave us a call from South Central Los Angeles. Where I live, I call it the Flatlands because I'm really close to a lot of other Black enclaves. And you have like all of these Black folks living in this area of kind of like post-World War II track homes where much of the land that we live on was highly likely farmland before houses were built on it. And so when I walk through my neighborhood, I am ecstatic to see, for example, like passion fruit and sometimes papaya, pomegranate and jasmine and lemon. And, you know, it's not uncommon to see other things being grown, but persimmon being grown here is a rarity. So naturally, Dorothy's parents grew their own persimmon tree. It's over 35 feet tall, and they cultivated it especially for their tastes. A particular taste that reminded my mother of home. 
She's from a small seaside village where every fall, the tradition has been to make these dried persimmons. And so it really came as a labor of love and remembrance, but also wanting to be in the present and in the future. Nidhi Prakash, who grew up in Mumbai and Sydney, also had a very special fruit tree in her family. The first house that my parents were able to buy in Australia after we moved there was a pretty big deal because they'd worked hard for a lot of years to kind of build back up to the point of being able to buy something. And the thing that seemed to us like a real sign that we belonged in this house was that when we went to see it, we realized there was an Alfonso mango tree in the front yard, which don't grow in Australia. Then we realized that the people who owned the house before us were Sri Lankan and they had somehow smuggled this Alfonso mango tree into the country and planted it in the front yard. (laughs) So since that time, my dad was extremely possessive of the mango tree. He was always suspicious because it was in our open front yard that someone was stealing the mangoes (laughs) and was also very protective of it from the birds. So I just, I very clearly remember a couple of seasons where when the mangoes would start to come in, He would go out and individually wrap each mango in newspaper to protect it from the birds. (laughs) My dad is from Taiwan. My mom is from the Philippines. But both of them are Hororang, speakers of Hokkien. This is Stanford Cho. And like a lot of other folks I'm hearing from, he has a real affinity for mangoes. For me, it really is those yellow mangoes. It re- like because th- that was something I remembered uh, from my infancy in the Philippines, something that we did not have here in the U.S. These days, I'm actually in the habit of like getting the entire box for the bulk discount. Sometimes I'll eat them plain. Sometimes with yogurt. Sometimes I will. Uh, I'll do a caprese where I will substitute the mangoes for the tomato in a caprese. Oh. You can also sub in uh, Taiwanese basil for the uh, sweet basil. Yeah. The way my mom would eat the seed, like she would cut up the outside of the mango for all of us, but she would eat the seed and scrape it off. That's Raman Segal, co-host of the podcast Modern Minorities, also a lifelong mango fan. My wife does that now, and I'm like, honey, you don't need to eat with the seed. And she's like, no, 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 I'll do it. And I was like, oh, my mom used to love doing that. And my wife was like, are you sure she actually loved doing that? Or she just wanted to make sure you guys didn't have to make a mess while eating the seed. It's so funny. You you just reminded me, my mom would tell me when she was little, this is the best part of the bingo. The part that you can't cut off, the part that you have to like gnash your teeth into and get all the fibers stuck between your teeth. I can't do it. (laughs) I can't do it. It's the most delicious part of the fruit. Fruit was always everywhere. Here's Merck Nguyen, co-host of the podcast Adultish. Whenever we were doing um, Lam Yo, memorial, when we were having a memorial service for one of my ancestors, you know, fruit is always part of the offering. So it was always present there. But my mom also made sure that we ate stuff that was on the food pyramid. And she would always have fruit for us, whether it was peeled grapes because we didn't like the skin because we were picky and privileged little shits, whether it was strawberries covered in sugar because, again, we just didn't like the tartness. But I would always remember my mom would always try. And here's Ahmed Ali Akbar, host of the podcast See Something, Say Something, 
she would be like, all right, we're gonna eat an apple. And eating an apple wasn't just like, here's an apple for you, here's an apple. It was like, she would sit at the head of the table, she would slice it into six even slices, and then she would put out a jock masala. So when you're eating fruit, you know, sure, like you might pick up an apple and eat it, but it, there was definitely a ritual to the post-dinner fruit eating, which, you know, I think is very common in a lot other Asian cultures I've seen as well, that like, you might not always eat dessert, you might be eating fruit. My wife just walked in. Uh, you could ask her what her fruit. She hates fruit, by the way. I'm I'm particular. Okay, I have my niche likes, and um, I feel definitely ostracized from my family because of my beliefs and my attitudes towards fruit. Writer Niha Reddy helped me figure out why fruit was such an emotional thing for all of us. As generations turn over, rituals change or things are just forgotten that your parents did that you don't do and therefore your children don't do. There's pain in not being able to grasp language the way your parents can. There's, you know, pain in missing occasions abroad with family. There's far grander circumstances and, and modes of loss. But fruit is food and what more loving and easy thing to share that. Here's Raman one last time. Sounds weird, but you forget to eat fruit. And I think it's the 20s and the 30s were the years I kind of all but forgot to eat fruit unless I was forced to eat it. But I think as a child with a parent or being a parent, I recognize the importance. Interesting. So you have to be, you know, you have to be instructed to do this. It has to be part of the process. It has to be part of the process for sure. The only other fruit I have this weird memory with is durian, which is the worst thing ever. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Have you had it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it tastes fine, but it smells like hell. <laughs> <laughs> ah, durian. The king of fruits, as it's known in Southeast Asia. The size of a basketball, only oblong and covered in spikes. This fruit stands alone for another big reason. It's smell. Yes, it smells bad, but it tastes sort of like ice cream. And durian is a perfect example of how we sometimes have to be taught about food, from family and popular culture, and the different ways we teach people about what makes something good or bad. When we announced that we were working on a fruit episode, my friend Jen Wong wrote me right away to tell me about durian and how it had never occurred to her that it had such a bad reputation until she watched an episode of Andrew Zimmern's Bizarre Food, where he couldn't eat the durian. He spit it out. Seriously, this guy eats like monkey butts and I don't know what else and holds it down. So this was striking. Anyway, Jen's dad is from Singapore and in her family, a love of durian goes back generations. For them, durian really is king. We were having a white elephant on my dad's side of the family and my cousin helped my grandma buy a whole durian and just like wrap it up in a way. And it was like one of the last white elephant packages that was open. And once it was opened, like everyone in the family was like trying to steal this durian. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandma was just sitting there in her chair cracking up watching us as you could see everyone was so durian obsessed. Jen grew up in the States, and even though her mom doesn't like durian, her dad taught her to be something of a durian connoisseur. 
he would like stick a knife into the durian to like try to kind of cut some holes along one of the seams. And then stick like a wooden rice paddle or something to wedge open this durian. You go in the back in the tail uh-huh. and you wiggle it, it'll just open up because it's frozen. And then the smell would start to like emanate through the house. And my dad likes to talk about how my brother and I would be like, oh, it's smelly. The first thing they did was they ran away <laughs> because of the smell. And he would just talk to us and try to encourage us like, forget about the smell, just you know, but taste it. And then, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine, but taste it. Maybe four or five times later, all of a sudden the, the taste just get hooked up on them. From like not wanting to eat it at all to double fisting like <laughs> sections of the durian fruit. <laughs> well, that was quick. <laughs> Decades later, in the middle of the pandemic, Chen wanted to return the favor and get her dad a really thoughtful gift. She found a company called Year of the Durian, which ships durian from different parts of Malaysia. There was red prawn, blackthorn, and green skin, which are three different varietals that were coming from Penang in Malaysia. These were actually varietals that none of us had ever had. The fruit was cut fresh and sent in vacuum-sealed packs. Durian to your door. (laughs) And the whole thing came with postcards with tasting notes and details about the farmers who had bred each type of durian. So I opened it up and and it really smells good. And and then when you put it in your mouth, it's it's so creamy and so delicious. (laughs) Wow, this one's good. (laughs) Just that savoring face where he was just like, mm, this is so good. And he, he just couldn't stop smiling. <laughs> it was like, like being back in Singapore or Malaysia. And it's funny, my mouth is like watering thinking about it right now. <laughs> Jen says that learning to appreciate durian and not just to like it, but to really understand and get to know its nuances and all the dozens of varietals kind of reflects her relationship with her culture. Now, even though she's well aware that durian can be polarizing, loving it has become a point of pride for her. Because even durian has multitudes. Are you ready to co-create the world we want to live in? Then I recommend Our Body Politic, a political podcast that's by and for women of color, with everyone welcome to join. Each week, host Farai Chidea, a veteran Black woman journalist who's reported all over the U.S., gets real with women you need to hear from. Like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Rashida Tlaib, journalist Amna Nawaz, author N.K. Jemison, and more. So if you want your politics news to lift you up from day to day, then subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. Listening to Jen Wong tell me about all the different varieties of durian that you can't get in the States reminded me of how our industrial agriculture system has flattened what we think of as fruits and vegetables. You know, with the exception of maybe apples, everything is just one type. A pineapple is a pineapple. Or a mango is a mango. Except it's not. And that's something I've learned a lot about after talking to so many who are obsessed with the golden-skinned, creamy-textured Alfonso mango variety. 
Before certain fruit varieties were chosen for mass production, usually for their ability to withstand long travel or shelf life, there were so many more varieties. Now we see those alternative fruits marketed as heirloom, if they're even still around. In the case of the banana, for instance, 99% of the world's export bananas are now a variety called the Cavendish. After an earlier monocultured variety, the Gros Michel was wiped out by disease. Now, plant scientists are racing to find an alternative to the Cavendish, which is vulnerable to the same fate by disease. But that's another whole podcast. A couple of years ago, while writing a story for Eater about Asian-American farmers, I spoke with Kristen Leach, who runs Namu Farms. She told me a little about her trials and errors with growing a certain variety of Korean melon, sagwa chame. I grow predominantly Korean and East Asian herbs and vegetables and seeds to sell to other farmers to grow those vegetables. I was born in Korea, and then I was adopted to an Irish Catholic family in New York when I was an infant. And so it was, you know, 20-something years before I ever really sort of mustered up the courage to explore my heritage and my identity. And I felt like I started to do that just in this private way of, of learning to grow these different crops or exploring the food culture of Korea. I was amazed by Kristen's dedication to teaching others and literally planting the seeds for future generations. So I got her on the phone, along with Priya Krishna. I'm a food writer and the author of the cookbook Indianish. Priya also wrote one of those beautiful essays about cutting fruit in Bon Appetit. In it, she mentioned that her dad, an Indian immigrant, went to various Korean, Vietnamese, and Indian grocery stores in their hometown of Dallas to bring home the most interesting fruits he could find. It's hard for me to say why exactly it was important to him, but I think for my parents, just the ultimate like luxurious after-dinner treat was like a assortment of fruits. And when it was mango season, it was mangoes. When it was summer, we would have watermelon and stone fruit and... I think that my parents were like, we don't want to just eat the same like waxy apples and bananas that are available at grocery stores all year round. We want to really follow the seasons. They were sort of being seasonally driven before that was a thing. <laughs> Did you like that as a kid? Did you envy like cakes and cookies? Oh, yeah. I wanted the cakes and cookies. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, this fruit is fine. But I would go to my friends' houses and their parents would have like whole pies for dessert. They're even like they would serve fruit, but they would put like a big dollop of like ready whip or like cool whip <laughs> on top of it. You know, that looked great to me. Like cling peaches. I was so intrigued by cling peaches, the like ones that came in that like vacuum sealed tin. And then, like, as I grew up, honestly, now cutting fruit for myself is such a luxury. And I'm like, man, I was such a little shit who did not appreciate all that, like, luxurious cut fruit I had. <laughs> Kristen, what about you? I grew up with fruit, but I grew up with those, um, the waxy apples that Priya mentioned, um, <laughs> her parents vigilantly avoiding. We had a lot of fruit, but it was just kind of discerning between the lesser of evils, where it was like, oh, Macintosh apples are here. That's really special because it's not as disgusting as a red delicious apple or something like that. And yeah, at my grandma's, we would get some of the those tinned peaches or pears and that heavy syrup. And we thought that was like just incredible. 
we didn't realize that's not at all what the fruit really tasted like, but we just thought like this is the the peak of of what fruit should be. And but now years later, you're going and introducing people to chame melons from Korea, right? Is that, how's that going? Oh, it's great. I mean, the chame is one of my favorite fruits, and I think when I first started farming, like just certain crops felt really distinctly Korean, like. They were just a really particular cultigen that had been grown in Korea and really developed in relationship with Korean people or was something that was really like cherished by Koreans in the diaspora. And so I think the more I looked into the history, it was just so fascinating because I think one of the things is it was introduced in the 50s to the U.S. Um, by an American seed company. And I think it's always perplexed people, like even growers today, like, don't quite know how to pick it. And it's not as sweet as a lot of other musk melons. Even when it's picked at its peak ripeness, it's it's crunchy and it's supposed to be. And on a seed saving side, I think that's what's really amazing and why we need people to like really care about the food culture it comes from. Because to another grower that, yeah, maybe has a palate that's more used to hyper sweet melons or hyper sweet fruit, you may not see the merit of why this is so valuable. But in Korea, it's eaten fresh, but it's largely used in pickling and preserving because of how harsh the winter is. And so that low sugar content really allows it to ferment beautifully and things like that. And so that's why like all of these heritage melons that to a lot of Western consumers are are not really sweet. But to Koreans, like that's the perfect dessert. Like that's what people love is not too sweet. And so growing these kind of older varieties feels like a peek into a story of tradition and what is valued and things that maybe get disrupted in other parts of how we continue narratives, but the fruit can hold on to it because you taste it and you can think of food culture that goes back several generations, basically. Yeah, there's different expectations around fruit that I'm just like starting to realize. I mean, I love Asian pears, right? So I guess that's an umbrella term, Asian pears, but, you know, they can be less sweet. And I remember growing up, some kids were like, oh, but it doesn't taste like an apple or a pear. And I'm like, oh, but the <laughs> texture is so amazing. Oh, we I love Asian pears. I love that texture. Oh, mm, so good. Oh, it's so it's so good. It's so much better than a pear pear where I feel like it would just be like gloppy and mushy. But like an Asian pear has like some bite, has some graininess. Like, oh, Kristen, you mentioned pickling the Korean melon. And I want to get back to that for a second, because I feel like there's a lot of different ways to pickle and preserve fruits that are enjoyed in all cultures. But I just remember prunes and prune juice being like the butt of so many jokes in popular culture in America. And and at the same time, like there's a lot of like pickled plums and Chinese culture as well as Japanese culture. There's this drink called Suan Mei Tang that is really, really enjoyed in Taiwan. It's a little bit funky, I guess. It's a little bit salty or smoky, but these are, I mean, it's basically prune juice, <laughs> but better. I love prunes and we had prunes around all the time in our house, mostly because we were a house that really prized like smooth digestion. And so we had a lot of items in our house that would aid in like good gut health mm -hmm. and like smooth digestion. And so like the pr eating prunes was like a real treat. Yeah. Like I was trained. That's like if you eat a prune, like you'll have a great poop and <laughs> your day will be great. Like <laughs> nothing to be ashamed of there. I remember we had lemon achar. We had uh, mango pickle. And oftentimes 
These were achars that, you know, a great aunt would come into town and spend all day making achar and distributing it in different jars. And then she would give it to different members of the family. We'd label it and then we'd let it pickle throughout the summer. You know, where I live is a really big Italian prune plum producing area. And so, yeah, that's what we're largely surrounded by is prunes, which if you eat the fresh fruit is like so insanely sweet. But we also, we used to have a ton of the prunus mume, you know, the ume Japanese apricots. And I think it's interesting now because of just, you know, the history of having less Japanese American farmers, having retained their land uh, after being incarcerated. And so now a lot of this property, like those trees are this weird remnant of this other chapter but I was walking through the ume. There's two rows that are left and kind of picked up some branches to try to root them. And my landlord had seen me grab them and was like, oh, what do you want? That's just like this kind of weirdly bitter peach. And I think people now don't even really understand what the fruit is supposed to be or what it is really used for. And so they just see it as something's wrong. It's really bitter. When we just sort of end up defaulting to the sense of sweetness being the peak of flavor we miss out on a lot of really other interesting things that plants have been really bred and domesticated for. If you think ume is just disgusting and you've never had it prepared in a way, you're just thinking, oh, this raw fruit is really nasty. Someday that plant may be obsolete just because of of the power in that curation, basically. Yeah, it's so amazing to think of all the different things to look out for when you're growing a vegetable for optimum ripeness that don't have to do with sweetness. Yeah, it's just a strange sort of skewed value. I had never thought about that, but you're totally right. And when I think about like my favorite fruit, which is the mango, like, you know, you can get Alfonso mangoes, which are considered kind of like the king of mangoes shipped to you. But I've noticed that like a lot of Alfonso mangoes I have, they are sweet and nothing else. And I find myself more drawn to varieties like Atulfo and Kent, where as much as you're getting sweetness, you're getting tartness Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, that's important. And I think that's like what makes a mango taste like a mango really is like that acid, that sour flavor. And it would be such a shame if that tartness were sort of bred out of mangoes. It would sort of take away from what I think makes mangoes so, so delicious. Oh, that would be really sad. You know, thinking about what Priya is saying about mangoes, if one variety becomes the favorite, especially for export to different places, and then suddenly like large swaths of these older mango groves get cut down in favor of that because of the economic opportunity presented, then yeah, suddenly you can't just necessarily turn back the clock and regain that biodiversity once it's gone. And and this whole idea of like seeking out really like diverse varietals of fruit. I was really lucky enough to travel around the world because my mom worked in the airline industry when I was younger. As vegetarians, we often couldn't eat a lot of like the food that we went around the world. So like fruit and produce was like the way we experienced other cultures. And I would love to kind of instill this notion that my mom always instilled in us, which was sort of like seeing a country through its produce markets and through its fruit stands. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think all of these different cultures proliferating and developing really distinct food cultures is what's given us this sort of expanse of biodiversity as like plants became really different in relationship with people in place. And if now we have things that ultimately are servicing kind of a more 
one dominant worldview, then I think we start winnowing out a lot of other valuable information, like whether that's like the stories of the people and like what we see loss of language and all of these other things. And I think that I like to see people from different cultures like growing and having access to these plants because I think that's the most appropriate stewardship. I had never before connected the idea of loving fruits with stewardship of the land. But Kristen made a great point. Maybe just by appreciating fruits for their innate crispness or stench, sweetness or sourness, fermentability or digestive benefits, we're actually helping these traits survive so that future generations can enjoy them as much as we did. Immigrants from the Asian diasporas and beyond are constantly bringing their love of certain fruits, and maybe a love of fruit, period, to the U.S. And just as with food culture in general, it's changing the whole fruit game here. Whether we're shipping fruit around the country or smuggling it onto planes, teaching our kids the finer points of durian, searching our cities for varieties of mangoes, or growing the trees ourselves, our various fruit proclivities have taken root here. Just by feeding fruit to our kids or raising avid fruit eaters helps to preserve them. And while moms and dads might be certain that their kids are getting the most out of this transaction, it's also the fruit that wins in the end. So the next time you're cutting up a mildly sweet melon or trying to grow your own calamansi, you're not just satisfying a craving, but helping save a species and biodiversity itself, one bite at a time. Hmm. Now, isn't that sweet? This episode was written by me and produced by James Boo, Harsha Nahata, and Julia Shu. We were edited by James Boo and Julia Shu and mixed by Timothy Luli. Our theme music is by Dorian Love. Thanks to Priya, Kristen, Jen, and all the other folks who shared their fruit stories with us for this episode. We actually collected so many of these memories from our listeners and friends that we'll be posting them on Instagram at selfevidentshow using the hashtag myimmigrantfruitstory. So check it out and add your own story too. Self-Evident is a studio-to-be production made with support from our listeners. I'm Kathy Irway, and this is our last episode for a little while. So if you want to let us know what you thought about this latest season, email community at selfevidentshow.com. In the meantime, keep on sharing Asian America's stories. And don't forget to eat all that fruit off the mango pit. Okay, recording. Here we are to do the rest of <clears throat> fruit, 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 fruit.
Fruit, fruit, fruit. Okay.